Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelin keskin a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Chijong, a culture writer and critic. This week we're discussing After Sun and Poker Face, a film and a series that use perspective to conceal and reveal pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, man. That one felt very, like, logline-y. That was, that was good. <laughs> I know. So, we're almost done with January. What's been on your mind this week? What's going on in the world of Jenny? <laughs> this week, I have Gossip Girl on my mind, or the Gossip Girl reboot, or specifically the end of the Gossip Girl reboot. Oh, man, rest in peace, rest dude. In peace. Right after we talked about it. Yeah, we what? did. And then it just, like, I don't know if that was some sort of weird premonition for what would come. So the finale of this second and final season is if they don't find another place to pick up the series. Mm. It aired on the 26th, I believe. And Mm. I gotta say, like, this is undeniably not a good show. I think a lot of people would agree, even the people who watch it, a.k.a. uh, myself and a lot of the fans. I mean, you admitted (laughs) to it. You were like, yeah, it's not great, but... But I'm excited to see what they do with it, right? Yeah, it was just starting to get, you know, a little messier, a little more interesting in ways that the original sort of was. Uh, and I have to admit, even though it, it was like kind of a flop, it felt like a flop that would nevertheless continue to, you know, keep flopping around. Yeah, it's still, it's like, let's be real. It's not like the TV landscape is predominantly full of excellent fucking shows. For the most part, I would say they're clogged up, but that's maybe a mean way of reading it, of shows like this, where it's like very mid-tier. I I saw someone on like some Instagram reel that were like, (laughs) things I did after my spiritual awakening, stopped watching low-vibe shows. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but Gossip Girl, to me, is a low-vibe show. (laughs) So, So there's a lot of those going around. And like... Obviously, we usually associate them with a different platform, Netflix. Yeah. So I think that's the part that makes a little bit more sense, just because like HBO Max has been a li- has been way more cutthroat about that side of it. But yeah, cutting. Then and, again, and cost yeah, saving. exactly. But then again, they have cut shows that are also excellent. So you know, there is no rhyme or reason to any of it, really. Yes. Um, I yeah, I'm surprised as well. Honestly, I just kind of I'm curious about like what all the actors are gonna do because usually they're floating around New York. You know, yeah. I've seen a couple of them when I've been out, so I'm oh. curious about what they're gonna do for like work. Now. Yeah, I w- and I wouldn't say that necessarily that any of them got like a huge breakout role that yeah. would catapult them to the next big thing. So yeah, yeah it will be interesting. Anyway, what's on your mind this week, Felon? So I've been thinking a little a little bit about my uh hero. <laughs> Not really. She's great. <laughs> Phoebe Waller-Bridge who um has been been a while. You know, the last we heard of her, she was dropping out of Mr. and Mrs. Smith with Donald Glover. Mm-hmm. Um and she's I I I do personally love how she's been I guess dicking Amazon around which uh yeah, go for it. Fuck it. Fuck Jeff. Who cares? Um but she has apparently decided that she is going to do a show about Lara Croft and the Tomb Raider. Uh, very exciting times. I remember Tomb Raider from my youth, the game itself. It's also interesting because, like, obviously, the whole IP thing has started going into games. Uh, so yeah. Last of Us is showing on HBO Max right now. It's a huge success for HBO Max. Uh, so this makes sense as to why that's happening. I'm just curious about, like, the tone 
a bit. Um, hopefully it's something like Killing Eve because um, I do miss that first season. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I'm excited to see what she does. Um, did you know that she's married, not married, but that she's dating Martin McDonough of yes. Banshees of Inner Sharon fame? I, I found that out recently, I think, in the, the sort of Banshees, you know, glow. Uh, Dude. It makes sense. It makes sense. Like, they're both very talented writers. Um, I just, I'm, I don't know how that slipped past me. Because, um, you know, with the Golden Globes, they were at the same table. I was like, what the fuck is Phoebe doing there? <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, very, very excited for this Laurel Croft Tomb Raider thing. Well, what did you watch this week, Pellin? So this week I rewatched After Sun. Um, you can get this on VOD. You pay a couple of bucks for it, but... I watched this first when it came out, when it's cinematic release. I watched it at Angelica, packed out movie theater. So if you haven't heard about this, this is the featured directorial debut of Scottish filmmaker Charlotte Wells. It tells a story of Sophie, an 11-year-old girl played by Frankie Corio, who's a newcomer. She goes on holiday in Turkey, hey, to spend Yay. time, <laughs> to spend time and celebrate the birthday of her soon-to-be 31-year-old dad, Callum, who's played by Paul Meskel. Paul Meskel, you'll obviously know from Normal People mm-hmm. um, and other films, but this one landed him an Oscar nomination, his first. He's, I yes. think, 26 or 27, still He's very young. young. And this is his first lead role in like a feature film. Yeah. He's one of my favorite actors uh, of recent time, so really pleased for him. So this film is, you know, in the US it's distributed by A24 and in the UK it's movie, so it's like a very like indie darling. It's also mm-hmm. co-produced by Pastel, which is the filmmaker Barry Jenkins's production company. Mm-hmm. Uh, he played quite a heavy-handed role in, in getting this made, I believe. Anyway, this premiered at Cannes and it essentially became instantly critically adored. Like, it Across the board, I think everybody was like, that was my favorite film coming out of Cannes. So I was really, really excited to watch it. Mm -hmm. So this is a period piece set in the 2000s. And it's something that she has been pulling back from saying, but everybody knows that it is somewhat autobiographical for the filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Um, It's told through the perspective of Sophie as an 11-year-old observing her father. And that would essentially be the stand-in for Charlotte Wells herself. You know, when they were doing the promotional marketing materials for it around like its cinematic release, I believe A24 released a photo of her and her dad. um, Mm -hmm. Very similar to the one taken on holiday when they were on holiday in Turkey as well. Um, and there's like a like basically the exact same shot of Paul Meskel um, and Frankie Corio, so it is something that they've leaned into. It's clearly like very personal. Mm-hmm. I recently read in interviews like she is trying to say that it's n- not so much. It's more the emotional core of the story, but not necessarily the events or like the dialogue. Okay, right. I do think people are like very much drawing from the fact that it. Bears a lot of similarities to yes. to her life, her father's life, potentially their relationship yes, with each other, and definitely. especially I think like after you watch this film, and you might read about what happened with Charlotte Wells's like father in real life, that will definitely inform your oh, reading totally. of this film. 100%. Totally, a hundred percent. So quickly, want to just give it up for Paul Meskel. Obviously, excellent, excellent acting. He is my favorite part of this film um Mm -hmm. the oscar is so well deserved i do believe his performance in normal people is better but he had a lot more time 
Normal <laughs> people that was one. very, very good. Very good. You know, there's a reason why he has been, that was like such a star-making performance. Um, but Frankie Corio is also really good as far as like child actors go. Yeah. Um, I really bought into her. Like I thought mm-hmm. she felt very real. It didn't feel like she was acting. It felt like she was just kind of being herself. She was very, very good. I, I appreciate both the scenes where she's with Paul Mescal as the daughter and yeah. then also... You see her when she's off on her own and the, doing the things that, yeah. like, little girls at that age, when they aspire to be grown-ups, yeah. uh, the things that they all do. So it all felt very natural, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's definitely a coming-of-age story, too, because you see her at a point in her youth where she's just coming out of childhood and she's observing people, like, on the holiday with her that are, like, older than her by, like, I don't know, four or five years or something. Yeah, teenagers, maybe late teens, early college. Yeah, and you can tell that she wants to get to that point, you know, <laughs> which we all did. We all we all wanted to have that element of old enough to have fun, but not too old to have responsibility. So it's, it's fun seeing her well-executed performance from her. Let's get into, essentially, the style of this movie and what it's about. So... I would say that in terms of style, ambiguity and opaqueness is like the top line. It's something that happens with a lot of films that are told through the perspective of children. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's a creative choice. It's essentially meant to communicate that perspective where you are concealed from the adult world and adult themes and like what it is that adults do. Yeah. How did you feel about this choice? Well, it does make sense, as you said. It's it's all about, like, from the child's perspective, what they see, but what they may not totally get. Or they, they are, or maybe they actually do get stuff because children are not stupid. Yeah. Um, but they maybe don't fully understand it in the way that an adult would. I liked a lot of what Charlotte Wells did with the, you know, the kind of camcorder effect and this yeah. creating this effect of, like, going back and, like, exploring your memories or what you think happened at this point in your life yeah. um so i thought that was effective you know no definitely like the camcorder i think it's it's like it's meant to signify something very literal of just observation mm-hmm. and then also like again it's a stand-in for the perspective angle um it opens like with a shot of sophie at the airport and then near the end of the film we see it again through a, with like a different understanding of what that shot means i've read a an interview with charlotte wells as well where she kind of talks about the use of it and turns out she actually doesn't have footage of her dad, really. Like, she's uh, just got, yeah, she's just got, um, like, with the camcorder footage, she's just got a shot of his torso when they're playing chess. And she kind of talks about how, like, this generation, like Frankie Corio's generation, they record everything. They've got memory making all the time. If they ever need it, if they want to observe a point in any point in their lives, of any of the people, they can kind of do that. Whereas, like, for us... We don't have what they have, but at the time we had the camcorder and that felt like such a luxury and it felt mm-hmm. so like the possibilities were endless, essentially. Yeah, I loved it. I think, again, like in terms of the period piece, too, it works really well to communicate something about memory making um, or just preserving, you know, like with, with the whole ambiguity and opaqueness thing. I think it really works well in terms of the relationship itself, you know, namely fathers and daughters. We are famously mothers and daughters people. Like, that's where our (laughs) loyalties lie. I know a lot of people feel the same. But films about fathers and daughters, too, just strike something in me. Like, it just strikes a chord, I think, with everyone. I think that's the thing that a lot of people really 
empathize with when they saw this. And, you know, there's a old, the old saying of like, oh, we were all raised with an absent father, meaning like emotionally distant or stunted men, uh, which is, I think, just a truth of the patriarchy and like what has resulted in it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, whatever. Read bell hooks. Anyway, so <laughs> I loved it here because I think that with Callum, we see that he loves and he adores his daughter. Like, yeah. there, it is unquestionable. There is an intimacy between them that I think either those that had fathers like that can really identify and see in themselves. And for those that were missing it, wish that they had it. And then that kind of gives its own melancholy too. Yeah. It just really, I think it really speaks a truth about like what fatherhood means, um, especially a young father. Like Callum is our age. He's 30, going on 31, I'm 33. Like, I identify with him more than I do with, I guess, like, the perspective of the daughter in this. And I'm a daughter, and I've been 11, and I've been to Turkey also with my dad. It's just, like, it was fascinating to to see how it struck that balance between the two of them, in a way. So, Callum's depression, speaking of identifying with him a little bit more, I think this was the part that really affected me emotionally speaking what did you think about him and what we saw of him in this film yeah another excellent example of like concealment and then like uh the reveal or the what we are allowed to see and what sophie is allowed to see mm-hmm. um you see this all over like the hints of his depression how he seems not satisfied with where he is in life how much he feels he's missed out on mm-hmm. The moments where he's totally out of control and like reckless almost. And then mm-hmm. I think the most, one of the most powerful scenes for a lot of people probably was when he is full on sobbing and yeah. how much of that is just, it's raw and painful and emotional. So it turns out they had filmed all the scenes with Frankie and Paul Meskel like together. And then separately when Frankie didn't need to be there, they did all the like the solo shots. Um, with Paul and then that was it and that was just so that he can kind of separate between I guess the two types of performances because then one is very light easygoing and then another one is like very emotionally heavy yeah you can you can tell that there's just something that washes over him that he kind of drowns under a little bit and it's 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 really well done um I think my only gripe was not that we, I wish we saw a little bit more of it, um, just that I wish we held on to it a little bit more. The, that scene where he's crying, I felt like it cut away too quick. Um, there are times where I was just waiting for something really, really bad to happen. And there was like a tension in the air with that. There's a particular shot in the film, I don't know if you know which one I'm talking about, where he's on the balcony. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, yeah, like... It made me nervous and it also kind of made me like expect something. And I didn't know if I liked that part of it. Um, I also don't know if it's because, you know, I went into this film knowing that this was somewhat autobiographical, knowing that the filmmaker's father passed away when she was young. We don't know how. Uh, Charlotte Wells has not told us what happened with her father, how he died. But yeah, th- there's there's a once you see depression on the screen, there's only one conclusion that you think might have happened. So that, that yeah, made me I guess a bit we'll, sense. We but. can even just like... We can just lay it bare out there. Yeah. Like the main interpretation that I think a lot of people are drawing, walking away from this with is that Paul Miskell's character dies by suicide at some point yeah. after this last time that his daughter sees him. Yeah. And this is sort of her 
going back and, and revisiting in, in her mind, at least this in her mind and memories, you know, the last time they saw each other. Yeah. And then imagining a future in which potentially, you know, there's a scene where it's like, there are multiple scenes of her as an adult. Um, and you see like also this imagining of herself as an adult hugging and embracing and almost trying to or fighting but also trying to save her yeah her father who at this point still looks like he's in his 30s like stuck there yeah so that is sort of the the main interpretation of the film that it dances around it doesn't lay out explicitly Mm -hmm. but that's sort of like where many of the signs are pointing and especially like you said when you think about charlotte wells's own father passing away uh quite young that is what you can walk away with how do you feel about the dance scenes and like the the scene set in present day with adult sophie i think they made sense as like if this is what she was trying to go for this Mm. sort of you know suggestion that this is the adult looking back this is what she's inherited this is what she has remembered Mm -hmm. i think you know we like ambiguity we like the sort of soft edges of like what's left unsaid i think there is something about this film though with like how it operates with like the the adult pieces mm. how the the different like flashing sequences the you know the final shot essentially yeah. of the you know going into a closed room mm-hmm. um the father character it is all as we said like this this all kind of points to hints at one one sort of direction mm-hmm. but it's also i don't like that maybe part of that has to be supplemented by the knowledge of what happens in in charlotte wells's real life yeah. like the autobiographical nature of it like yeah. it's maybe everyone would have just got it anyway from the way that the film unfolded but i think maybe even a little bit too much is left unsaid or too much does not happen yeah. for it to be able to stand on its own wholly without like this this additional sort of knowledge that yeah. it's like will grant you a better revelation yes i didn't think it needed the scenes of adult sophie i also didn't think it needed the dance sequences i would have preferred to have spent more time with them on holiday whether they're together or whether it's like just him alone i don't know i just uh, i have my qualms with it i i don't think i love it as much as everybody else loves it like a lot of my friends really gave it the whole, like, you know, 10 out of 10, 5 out of 5. It's one of the best films I've seen. It's not that for me, but I do really like it because I love small, personal movies. Like, it's just, I think I'm someone that, even in my own work, like, I love to lean into shit that feels very true to myself and, like, very emotional. Um, this is definitely my bag. Like, I love stories about parents, too. So I love this in general, but it's not my favorite, and I do have some some issues with it. Um, name name yeah, the editing, like give Paul give Paul his fucking like don't cut away from Paul Meskel. Like what are you doing? Um, so that was my only gripe, but yeah, 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 it's it's sort of interesting that you say that because I think I had a little bit of a similar reaction overall. Mm. Wherein mm. I yeah. know a lot of people who loved it. I yeah. thought it would be a hundred percent out my bag. Yeah. Um, intellectually i like it in a lot of parts of it and i understand what it was trying to do but yeah at the end of the day like at a true emotional core level it Mm -hmm. didn't quite hit me as much as i think i expected it to do or wanted it to and yeah i again like understanding intellectually like what 
what is happening, why it's happening, what are the choices, why they make sense, but still, like, somehow the, the parts of it just didn't 100% add, add up to, like, a like how I feel about, like, The Lost Daughter, for instance, or yes. another film that is, like, similarly about parents and child and uh, yeah. all the emotion that goes into that. Yeah, totally. Exactly the same. It's still very good. I recommend it to anyone that wants to watch it. We might be the flukes in this. Like, it kind of feels like we are. Um, but everybody loves this film. And I think it's just worth watching for Paul Meskel. And I really hope he gets that Oscar, to be honest. But I think, <laughs> unfortunately, Elvis is going to squeeze him out. Oh, um, God. Yeah. <laughs> All right, what have you been watching this week, Jenny? So I've been watching Poker Face, which is yeah. yes, it's a it's a new Ryan Johnson murder mystery on Peacock. Uh, this time it is in the form of a series for once, it, uh, a series starring Natasha Leone specifically. It premiered by the time you're listening to this, it will have premiered last week with four episodes. And then every week, a new episode will come out going forward. Yeah, it's on Thursdays, I believe, a yeah. new one. Yeah. Uh, so in this series, again, Natasha Leone is a star. She plays Charlie, who is a casino worker with the uncanny ability to tell when people are lying. So mm-hmm. this is a huge device. And um, yes. for the most part, it works, I think. But yeah. to give a little more information, in the first episode, we sort of get all the scene setting for who Charlie is. She is... Mm-hmm living still in like on her home turf she's working at a casino owned by a crooked boss um but the murder of a friend and all these sort of events that transpire afterward in the episode they force her to go on the run and so in all the episodes after that we see her driving from place to place to try to outrun the people who are hunting her all Mm -hmm. the while she is solving new cases everywhere she goes yeah she yeah. has uh, the uncanny, uncanny ability to tell when people are lying and also to meet people who murder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just everywhere she goes, she can't really escape it. Yeah. Um, and in case you couldn't tell from that summary, this is an episodic show. So it's very yeah. much case of the week format. New homicide, new setting, new characters each time. And Charlie is like the only constant moving forward. It is basically a procedural, and yeah. I think I'm loving that the fact that it is a procedural. Me too. Do you ever watch Columbo? No, but I know a lot of people have compared this to Columbo. Yeah, yeah. So my parents, like my mom grew up watching Columbo, and she deeply wanted to be Columbo herself, but she was the one that put me on. I watched a couple of episodes like very recently, because I wasn't able to watch it on the BBC um, in the <laughs> early 2000s, but... It's very long, like each episode is basically a movie. Yeah. Um, but it has, it follows that format where it's like a very compelling detective. Peter Falk, then obviously Natasha Leone now. Super compelling. We love Natasha Leone. Um, she's very singular as yes, a person. Yes, you can say that again. <laughs> <laughs> and um, as was Peter Falk was. And then like, you know, it's just, it, it, it's just like that detective, like, or that person in this case with Natasha Leone's character working through the details um and then the best part about colombo was that it had a lot of like famous people starring in in each episode like Mm. really you know at that time well-known well-respected actors and actresses uh my favorite episode is obviously the one that he did with john cassavetes um they were friends too so that it was yeah anyway this is really fun because i think in addition to the procedural we do get to see 
loads of famous people that we've seen in TV or film in the past yes. just show up. Um, it's pretty great. Actually. Yeah, just yeah. to name a few of them in these first few episodes, we have Adrian Brody, of course, still mm-hmm. playing a, a sleaze bag very well as he does. Yes. Uh, I still Dash- would though. I still, I still <laughs> like even just in that terrible character. I'm like, yeah, I still would. <laughs> like, fair, fair. We yeah. have um, Dasha Polanco, Hong Chao, who is like everywhere right now. Um, mm-hmm. Lil Ray Howery, Chloe Sevigny. Like it's we have a lot, and there are more to come. I a lot yeah. more to come. I think so. Ryan Johnson is really pulling on his like full Rolodex. Yeah, um, man. And another thing I like about it is that. Instead of being like a whodunit, it is. I didn't know there was a term for this, but it's a it's a how catch him, oh. which is again that's uh, I think the format that Columbo was as well. So it's yeah. sort of inverted from a whodunit. It's we see at the beginning of each episode uh, who the murderer is. We know who it is. We know how the murder unfolds, and then in in the show we sort of double back the perspective shifts. We see how Charlie was actually sort of on the periphery all along she fits into the whole thing and she proceeds to solve the mystery using all the the sort of details that she picks up along the way so i it turns out i think i really like that format and i think it was really smart in this case i find ryan johnson's strength and most like murder mysteries the the most compelling Mm -hmm. part to me is is when they fit together those little pieces of the puzzle they like sort of zoom back and show how things happen and how the detective like deduced how things happen. You know, nowadays it's kind of hard to, I think, do something new with a whodunit. Um, yeah. Ryan Johnson has tried in the glass onion. He tried to do sort of like a twist on the whodunit. I think we mentioned it before when we talked about glass onion, I wasn't very convinced or compelled by that. Uh, so the how catch format, I think is working a lot better here yeah i mean it's it's still in his wheelhouse though like yeah like he likes he likes the little the little itty bits the little details of how things happen yeah i mean i highly recommend for those that haven't seen it to watch his film brick it's one of his early day films it's really good it's got joseph gordon levitt in it it's like a neo-noir like jokey like a kind of like sarcastic neo-noir mystery thriller about a bunch of like high school kids trying to like or just young people trying to solve the mystery really great like yeah this is this is a huge strength i was actually curious to see if i would get bored of this format by like episode four mm-hmm. um because they weirdly release four fucking episodes at once which i've never seen <laughs> before like it's usually like two and then week by week but whatever mm-hmm. i was really pleased that we got to see four and i didn't get bored by episode no. four i was actually still having a good time because it's like you enter new cities, new worlds, new like industries. Like there's there's something really fun about how you get stuck into like the barbecue world and then the metal world and then yeah. you know like all of that. It's it's pretty fun. Yeah, I think it is like you know you get to explore a new kooky little run of the mill place every week, and I think that's really nice. Um, there's a comfort to that in knowing that that is how it's set up, but it is also interesting enough and different enough from each other. And so far, and at least in the four episodes we've seen. Like the way things happen are different enough too. Like all the ways yeah, yeah, people yeah. can get murdered, I guess. Like yeah, all the different yeah. plots and and planning that happens. Um, yeah, they are different. There is sometimes predictability, of course, uh, but mm-hmm. sometimes there is like surprise as well. Like I'll say in the second episode, when at the first, um, you know, the first fifteen minutes, actually, like you spend a couple minutes not sure who is going to be 
the killer and who is going to be killed. Um, so there's something like that baked in into some of these episodes, which I think is nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you have a favorite episode of, of these four so far? Oh, I would probably say that the second episode, The Night Shift, is probably my favorite so far, mm. for sure. And it's because of what you said, where there's, an, there's a bit of an uncertainty and it's also because there's more tension in it where she has a time yeah that she has to get out of there so she has to kind of solve it before um something else like basically the person that's on her tail finds her yeah i just i just like where it kind of landed and i also like it's the episode the hong chow is in so obviously i'm gonna like it the best <laughs> like yeah. period so yeah yeah what about you i i really like that one as well um i, th- I think i kind of have a soft spot for the vegan barbecue yeah that's master true. as yeah. well i think just yeah. the the intricacy of kind of how that murder took place was yeah. really interesting to me and yeah. also i think in a lot of these like what i really like is also the the sort of humanity of mm-hmm. the victim how charlie this character charlie relates to them how yeah. her trying to not avenge them but how to like you know, do justice or yeah. uncover what happened. It's in in part because of the connection that she feels to them, how it's like such a shame that this person yeah. who was nice or, or innocent or had dreams or, you know, a good person, how they were unfairly, unjustly like killed off by people who are terrible. Yeah. Um, so there is that sort of little bit of, I guess, emotional core running throughout each episode as well, which I yeah, think is nice. Yeah. Yeah, because it kind of showcases her other skill, which is empathy. Yes. Like she's someone that really, really understands people, gets to the core of what it is. And, you know, you don't know if that's because she can tell when they're lying or not and, like, what they're lying about informs the type of person that they are. But, yeah, that's her other strength and, like, she plays to it. And we get to see that, you know, obviously after we see the first run of how the murder run uh, goes through. Um, Yeah, I really appreciate that. I also like how the murderers have an emotional reason for what they're doing even if it's a bad one even if it's extreme yeah um you kind of get to see why they might not it's not random like it makes sense yeah um yeah yeah. talking more about natasha leone and how this is like a great role for her i really do think this is like maybe a a perfect role for her like so Mm -hmm. she has her deal her very specific singular deal as you said (laughs) um sometimes it works often it works i mean you know yeah. it has to be she's doing the thing that she does but sometimes like i'll say like in russian doll season two i found her whole thing to be even a little bit too grating for me to finish mm. the second season but here i think it really works here um with yeah, this I agree. character and the the kind of slightly zany world that she inhabits mm-hmm. um there's something about this character that is like a little bit annoying but also quite endearing as well like yeah sometimes you just want her to shut up especially when she goes on and on in front of the murderer and she's like spilling all of the information she knows in front of them not knowing that they're the murderer but but that's i guess that's kind of the point yeah it's this is like who she is she is a very persistent earnest sort of annoyingly like present character she will go anywhere she will talk to anyone she will 
she's down for anything she's down for anything she'll she's she can like make friends and enemies like wherever she goes this is just like who she is and it's like a sort of integral part of her character um it's also like that's the columbo aspect of it as well because with columbo his whole thing was that he was also really fucking annoying (laughs) to the to the murderer like to the people that were suspicious and through their like it's funny like as a viewer you'd get annoyed for them yeah because he just would not let up like he'd constantly be like and another thing and like turn around and like say it and like keep talking and keep talking and explain it and like the whole thing is that he's trying to confuse them with detail so that then they let up a bit a bit of information or like if they're trying to cover something up to like say say something wrong which i i think is like that's what her that's what charlie's trying to do as well low-key like it feels like she's spilling too much but what she's actually doing is giving them information so that they can turn around and tell her a lie and then she can figure out why they're lying mm-hmm. um so i i didn't mind that part of it yeah i i mean it's it's just it works you're right it works and for the record i didn't watch russian doll season two because i knew that that would happen oh i was like i'm just gonna crystallize my good <laughs> memories of this one season and the rest doesn't matter yeah um i learned my lesson with killing eve so i'm not gonna do it <laughs> so yeah. i think that's that's probably a smart decision um but ultimately poker face is even more like a grown-up Scooby-Doo than the yeah. Glass Onion was. Like, we had yeah, that comparison definitely. in the Glass Onion mm-hmm. um, discussion. And it, it's really a pleasure, I think. It'll be a pleasure for us to tune in each week and mm-hmm. just, like, have fun and see how – take comfort in, like, how these things unfold while yeah. also continually being, like, surprised at, at small turns. All right, so for Culture Notes this week, the Oscar nominations came out. And, you know, there was talk about random nominations happening, things being omitted. But I think the thing that we want to chat a little bit about is the nomination of Andrea Riseborough for the Best Actress. So for those of you that don't know, for about a year now, we've essentially had a pretty good idea of which actresses or which actors are going to get an Oscar nomination because there's been a whole campaign effort from the side of the studio, from the agents, PR companies, all of that shit. And then Andrea Riseborough, which if you don't know who she is, that's totally fine. She's one of my favorite actors. She's a British actor. She's been in a bunch of stuff. If you ever watch 000 um, on Amazon, if you ever watch Possessor, you know, these are some of the recent works that she's been in, but she's a very good actress. However, not that many people know about her. Did you know about her before this news, Jenny? Just out of interest? No, I don't think I did. And I definitely yeah. didn't really have to Leslie on my radar either. Yes. So the film that she's been nominated for Best Actress is called To Leslie, which is an independent film. It didn't make that much money. I think it only made like 30 grand. I hadn't even heard about it. And I'm an Andrea Riseborough fan. So it just goes to show um, that this came as a surprise. Like her nomination came as a surprise. And especially because no one had really heard about it until Edward Norton tweeted about it very recently. And Kate Winslet, I think in her acceptance speech or at some show or something, just basically shouted her out um, to say that her performance was amazing. Um, And these two things, uh, for some reason shifted everything in the last minute and Andrea Riseborough got a nomination and so what has happened now is that a lot of people are worried 
that this squeezed someone out, A, and B, it maybe happened nefariously, <laughs> where some funny business happened, um, and that's how she got this nomination. Yeah. Well, the Academy itself like announced that it's, quote-unquote, conducting a review of this nomination, this year's Oscar campaigns, yes. and particularly, you know, with a focus on the, quote-unquote, grassroots effort um, that resulted in Andrew Riseborough's nomination. And the way that nominations work is, like, for each category, for the example, actors, you have the Academy's actors branch mm-hmm. doing the nominating. Um, so it's all people who are kind of like peers. They might know each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think you're probably not allowed to maybe be like Andrea Riseborough herself, like calling everyone up and be like, hey, can you can you like do X, Y, Z for me? Or like, I'll hold a party at my place and you all can like come over and watch it or whatever. But um, right. there are ways yeah. for like... For example, I think in, there have been reports that the film's director, Michael Morris, and his wife, who's an actress, Mary McCormick, they have been, like, sort of involved in, in spreading the word among their famous friends, um, you yeah. know, asking if anyone can sort of just kind of, like, wanting to spread just the word a little bit. her name in the bit. bucket. Yeah, 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 yeah. get her yeah. name out there. And there's, like, probably nothing wrong with that technically, no. but no. it sort of reveals a little bit about how campaigning works when you don't have the budget to run like a year-long campaign like some studios do like a lot of how awards contenders become awards contenders is because they have the the budget to pull off the marketing and pull off the campaigning like host these screenings and events um among the the different sort of bodies of the the academy who who have the power to do the nominating Yes. I mean, I think a good example of this is probably Everything Everywhere All at Once. That mm. made a lot of money for A24. Um, and I think they used a lot of that money and they realized that they had a grassroots product on like the audience side of it that they could work with to then funnel into the campaign for nominations. Otherwise, you know, feel how you want to feel about this film. That film is not your average Academy Award film. Like, I think everybody can accept that. Um, So the fact that it's gotten so many nominations, it's like one of the most nominated films this year, is because they put so much money into making sure that Michelle Yeoh, Ki-Hui Kwan got, you know, their due in terms of like just making the rounds, making sure that they were talking to the right people, talking to other actors. It's a campaign. It's like a political campaign. Like you have to show your face. You have to talk. You have to make sure you say what it is that you wanted to do with this film. And like people respond to that earnestness and they put your hat in the bucket because they like you, because they met you and they talk to you about your vision and your performance or whatever it might be. So yeah. this is something that is, it just happened. Yeah. Some films don't get to do that because they don't have that budget. And a lot of, honestly, a lot of studios do not budget out for films that do not make money in the box office for that yes. type of film. And like to add on to that, um, sometimes like the voting body, they they vote because they purely have heard of something. Like they will pick something that's like, oh, I've heard of this. I've heard people really like this. I've heard that yeah. this is like, you know, my peers are voting for this is a shoe in or oh, like, you know, I really yeah. respect this director yeah. or something. So it's like not at all a scientific process. It's not no. a fair process at all. Um and I think, like, Andrea Riseborough's nomination in particular, like, 
it's maybe an unorthodox way to do it in this day of like, you know, spending to, to get this awards campaign going. But I have to say, I don't particularly see anything wrong with that. Like that is like, if people consider that dirty, well, the whole awards business is dirty. Like yeah, that dude. is how it is. I mean, that's just how it is. And like, just as a side note too, there's a reason why, for example, your favorite actors will win best actor or actress in a really shit film. Yeah. Like, their best performance might have been something that they never even got a nod at. But for some reason, like Glenn Close gets one for the wife. Who saw the wife? Well, I did eventually. But like, it's just, it's, it's just like, that's a really good example where wrong film, right actor. And I think this is, this is one of those instances. I don't feel bad because I think Andrea Riseborough deserved a nomination for Possessor. In terms of like the structure itself, like, is it, an absolute travesty that Viola Davis was not nominated for Woman King? Absolutely. But unfortunately, that film was snubbed across the board. Nope was snubbed across the board. Like, it's mad that this happens, but it does. Um, And that's just, like, something that I think structurally needs to change. Uh, It's just a shame that I think Andrea Riseborough is being punished for it. Um, Not her fault. Yeah, it it's really, if anything, it's just, like, sort of symptomatic of like what is going on with the awards and like sort of industry things overall just like the sort of unfairness or um people not being able to get a seat at the table or all of this this is all part of it and again i I do agree like sort of like singling out andrea riseborough for what like just having not that much budget for for this film and like you know, maybe knowing some people and sort of asking yeah. them to spread the word. Like, it's no more or less dirty than, like, how any of it works. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly less money involved. So, like, in that sense, it's a little bit less dirty. Sure, but, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, all, it's all shit. Like, I think, I don't know if our listeners know this, but you would be surprised by how the voters just simply do not watch the fucking films. They just don't watch it. It's it's really weird just inside a business, like, who you like, who they generally respect. Like, it's all very dumb. Um, we will obviously, I think, once the Oscars are nearing, we will do a little, like, prediction pod. So, like, stay yeah, tuned for sure. that in a couple of months. Um, but in the meantime, uh, that's it from us this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you think we should be watching anything else and we should check it out and talk about it, please let us know at criticismisdead at gmail.com. You can also at us or DM us at criticismisdead, all one word, um, on Twitter and Instagram. For extended show notes, including links to everything we've been talking about and more for a little bit of homework, please subscribe to our newsletter, criticismisdead.substack.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and maybe tell a friend about us. We will see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pellin Keskin Lou and Jenny Chi Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Lou.